Hey, would you open up to Daniel chapter 9 with me this morning? Daniel chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. In the first year of Darius, the son of someone, by descent of Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book, in the books, the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. As we begin at chapter 9 here, Daniel lets us know when this is all taking, a, taking place. And basically verse 1 tells us that it's it, when the rule of Darius began in that very first year, Darius the son of uh, Hasarus, and, uh, by the, he, was a, he was a Mede. And basically, so he, when he took over rule of Babylon, uh, basically that's when Daniel received this vision. And as we, as we saw last week, the Medo-Persian Empire consisted of two nations, Media and Persia, and then they converged into one nation, uh, with Persia being the dominant one under Cyrus. Cyrus was the king over everything, and we believe that apparently, although Cyrus the Persian was the one who ruled the entire empire, there's this, there's this uh, leader named Darius that was set up over the region of Babylon. There's different ways of viewing that, but that's what I see here. And he was over the Chaldeans. Verse 2 tells us that it was in the first year of his reign over the area of Babylon that Daniel was then reading the prophet of Jeremiah. you got to understand, 70 years of captivity and then all of a sudden, under Babylon, and then all of a sudden we got a whole new regime that, that jumps in. And Daniel, in the first year of this new regime, this new nation that took over the area, he is now reading the prophet that Jeremiah, and specifically what struck him is that Jeremiah had said that 70 years must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, if you remember way back in chapter 1, Daniel was a teenage boy when, uh, when the Babylonians came in and they conquered Jerusalem in several different ways. But in the first wave, they took back captives of including Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were all teenagers when they got yanked out of their homes. Their families were killed. The city was decimated. And so they took the prime young men, the young women, and they brought them back to uh, Babylon. And so now in Daniel 9, we're in Daniel 9 here. Daniel is like 80. He's in his 80s. So he's, he's getting up there. And He's been in captivity for about 70 years, 70 years of captivity. Can you believe that? And as Daniel is opening his Bible and he is doing his daily reading, he is reading Jeremiah, which we know to be Jeremiah 25. That's where he was reading. Uh, you can flip over there uh, right now, two books left or two or three books left. But he sees in reading this that the desolation of Jerusalem and the Jewish captivity would only be for 70 years. That's what Jeremiah prophesied before it happened. He's lived through that 70 years. They're at the end of the 70 years, and he's going, okay, what's next on God's timetable? He's reading this. And so if you would, please go a couple books left in your Bible over to Jeremiah 25 with me just for a minute. This is the section that Daniel was reading. Jeremiah 25. Now just something to note. When you look at all these books, you see these names, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Jeremiah was a major prophet. And the reason why they call them major prophets is because they talked a lot. 
Their, their books are bigger, right? And so they're all prophets, but some have more exhaustive work. And so Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel got divided after King David and Solomon into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. But he is speaking now to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already fallen, and the southern kingdom is about to be judged. And so he spoke to the southern kingdom. He warned them for a little over two decades that if they didn't repent, God would bring judgment. And so Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. That's that southern kingdom of Israel where the capital was, uh, Jerusalem. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So you're going from, hey, this was our president, but this is the guy who's going to come take us over. This was his first year. And verse 2 says, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He says, verse 3, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, not just me, Jeremiah says, all the guys. You haven't listened. Saying, verse 5, turn now every one of you from his evil ways and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And then I will do you no harm. Yet, verse 7, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your, with your hands to your own harm. So Jeremiah spends 23 years and no one listened to him. So if you think you've got a bad job, I mean, this is like tw- no one's listening to him. 23 years, same message, day after day, and they throw him in pits. I mean, just a horrible uh, oppression, but he was faithful to deliver the message of God to the people of God, even though they would not listen. In verses 6 and 7, we see when, in, in, in chapter 25, uh, the problems, the, the main two accusations that Jeremiah brings up in chapter 25, the main two accusations was, number one, they are idolatry, and number two, the work of their hands. These things were an affront to God. And number one, they had fallen away. They had gone after the pagan gods around them. See, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be holy, set apart. They were to worship the one true God. But what they had done is they abandoned the worship of the one true God and they had started to assimilate all the gods of the culture and brought them into their worship. They were worshiping their gods. They were sacrificing their children to them and all the things that these gods demanded and did, the demons behind them. They had lost their light. They had lost their witness among the nations. And number two, the work of their hands. That was the second thing. And we'll get into this the second half of chapter 9, when it deals with the 70 weeks of Daniel. But basically what had happened is they had failed to obey God's command for them to, for the the Sabbath law regarding the land, that every seven years you let it rest for a year. That was the command for the Jews. And they hadn't done that for a long time. And so basically what we're going to find is they were in captivity for every year that they didn't do that, 70 years, so 490 years years they were in disobedience. And we'll see how that plays out in the future as well. Don't want to get into that at the moment. 
And so Jeremiah, as well as other prophets, had been warning them, calling them to repentance, but they would not turn. And so Jeremiah here goes, in chapter 25, gets a word from the Lord concerning what God was going to then do to them if they did not turn. And he says that this happened, this, this word he got was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And so Jeremiah says in verse 8 of chapter 25, therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have what? Not obeyed my words. Behold, I will, listen, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. And that is exactly what happened because of the nation's sin in that they did not obey the Lord. They did not repent. They didn't listen to his word. And Jeremiah said that they would be conquered and Jerusalem would be made desolate. And guess what happened? God made good on his word. He sent an evil king to go take out supposedly the righteous people of God and their sin. And that's exactly what happened. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and he laid siege to Jerusalem and he did just that. And verse 10 here in chapter 25 says, Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth, from the voices of gladness, from the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, and the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. I'm going to banish them from daily life, the life that they've known in Jerusalem. This whole land shall become a ruin and a wasteland, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for how long? Seventy years. And so Jeremiah not only prophesied the judgment of God upon Jerusalem, that it's going to be desolate, that the people would come under the judgment from King Nebuchadnezzar. He also said that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take some of them, the ones who are left, basically, back to Babylon as captives. And he did that in three successive waves, beginning with the first wave where he took Daniel, and then two more after that. And Daniel was taken as that teenager in the first wave. But God's plan continues to be laid out here in Jeremiah before it happened. And if you read in verse 12 through 14 of Jeremiah 25, it reads like this. He says, then after the 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And I will bring, bring upon that land and all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them. And I will recompense them according to the deeds and the work of their hands. That was Habakkuk's problem, basically, is how in the world, God, could you use such an unjust nation to judge us. And he was brokenhearted over that. And God says, their day is coming. God is just. And this is exactly what we have. Is here we are in chapter 9. Daniel has just witnessed the fall of Babylon after him being in around 70 years in captivity. He's, he watched it firsthand. If you remember back in chapter 5, remember chapters 1 through 6 are kind of a historical count? And then seven are vision, seven honor visions. Well, those, some of those visions take place in history. And what we find is chapter 9 takes place right after chapter 5, which is the fall of Babylon. I know that's kind of like, I see it in my head, but 
Anyways, just have fun with me for a minute. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, he's in there taking, he's having a party, and they're surrounded, the city is surrounded by the Medo-Persians, but he took all this, he thought there's no way they're going to come in here, we've got this giant wall, there's no way, it's 80 feet thick, 200 feet high, or whatever it was, and there's just no way, you know, and they, so they partied all night, all the kings, and what had happened is there was a writing on the wall when all this had happened, a, a, a finger started writing, and, and they needed someone to interpret it, well, the king's mother-in-law or someone remembered that, hey, Daniel could do this. Daniel comes in, he says, listen, the writing's on the wall, basically, king, you're done for. Tonight, you're gone. And that's exactly what happened. We know that they diverted the waters and they came in under the, where the river went into the city. And that night, the king was slain and the city was taken over. That night, the Medo-Persians came in and Darius was set up as the leader there. And Daniel knows that according to Jeremiah, as he's reading the word, 70 years are right about up. This just as it's following along, just as God had said in the word, it's happening. And he sees the change. He sees the judgment fall on Babylon. And he goes, the 70 years are up. And he knows the next thing on the scene is that God is going to restore the people. He's going to restore Jerusalem. And so as Daniel sees the plan of God unfold before him, he sees a big gap between what God would do and where they're at. He sees a people that are under the judgment of God, that have not repented of their sin, that have been hunkered down in what they're doing. They've become accustomed to Babylonian life now. And so Daniel needs to step in the gap, he begins to intercede and he confesses the sin of the nation, of his own sin, before God. He intercedes in this prayer of confession and that's what we have. In verse 3, it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercies with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel turns to the Lord in prayer. In this prayer, specifically a prayer of confession. Lots of different types of prayers, but this one's a prayer of confession. Now, we already know that Daniel is a, is a man of prayer, right? We know from chapter 6, Darius there is someone, you know, some of his guys say, hey, we've got a great idea, Darius. No one can pray except for to you for 30 days. How about that? He's like, that sounds great. Let's do that. Under the penalty of death? Yeah, that sounds great. Why don't you guys pray to me? And so they made it so, but Daniel kept doing what he had always done. He kept worshiping the Lord and praying. He got thrown in the lion's den and God spared him. He was a man devoted to prayer. We know that. We see that in principle. But what we saw in principle that Daniel is a man of prayer, we actually see in practice right here how he actually prayed. And that's pretty cool. And we can glean a lot from it, which I plan to kind of pull out some of the highlights here as we move forward. So we know Daniel you know, is a man devoted to prayer. But as we go through this prayer, let's, let's focus on some of the aspects of a prayer of confession before the Lord, because how many of you um, know that we as a nation need to repent before God, that we as the church need to repent before God, and that, and that we as individuals and families need to repent before God constantly on an ongoing basis because we are riddled with sin? <clears throat> should be part of our ongoing lives as believers but this is a watershed moment for Israel. Let's glean some things. 
And the first aspect I want to point out of Daniel's prayer, real quickly, we're going to point out some of them. In this prayer confession that might be of benefit to us, that will be, is as I want to point out that it was in response to the Word of God. Daniel was reading the Word of God, and as he read the Word of God, and he saw the plan of God, and he saw what the people did, and he saw the weight of the judgment, and he, and he just saw God being violated and him having to judge his people and all these things, he was convicted. His prayer was a response to the Word of God. We already saw in verse 1 and 2 that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah there. And that's what became apparently apparent to Daniel as he was in the Word, that why they were in the mess that they were in. Anybody who had that before? You're reading the Word, and all of a sudden, the words start to click with where you are, and God's speaking, and you're going, that's you. That's you. And so Daniel sees this. And what Daniel also saw, he saw the mess they were in. He saw the judgment of God. But he also saw the plan of God, the potential for the people of God, what God truly wanted to do in and through them. And he saw the gap between where they were and what needed to happen. That in order for the people of God to be blessed again, to move out of the cursing and into the blessing, and I'm not getting weird on that, that's the term that's used in Leviticus 26 for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. To move out of the, the cursing for disobeying the Lord, moving into the blessing, there had to be repentance. There had to be confession. There had to be obedience in the hearts of the people. Daniel saw this, and he was convicted to the point where he began to confess his sins and the sins of his people. And I love Daniel's humility because he throws himself right in with everybody else. But it's in response to the Word of God. And, and we really have the same thing for us churches as well, that as we are in the Word of God and the Lord reveals His will for us as a people, and there are times when we are out of that will and His Spirit convicts us often in the light of His Word and the heartbeat of the church should be as we are reading the will of God, as we see the will of God, as we see His plan, as we see what He's doing, is, Lord, Your will be done. Lord, Your will be done. Lord, change my life to match Your will. The aim of prayer, according to Jesus, is that the Father's will be done. How many of you in your prayer life, uh, this is a little bit of a side note, but the aim of your prayer life is to get what you want. How many of us, when we have a, a regular habit of reading the Word of God and saying, Lord, that's what I want to have happen in my life, as opposed to, these are the circumstances, God, now make it easier for me. Miserable prayer life. The purpose of prayer is that the Father's will be accomplished, and Daniel's prayer came out of response to the Word of God. He saw what God's will was, and as painful as what he said, Lord, this is where I'm aiming with my prayer. This is what needs to happen. Our hearts need to change so that your will would be done. The second aspect of Daniel's prayer that I want us to see is, that Daniel, is Daniel's attitude of prayer. We just read in, in verse 3 where it says, And then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and what? Please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel didn't approach God with pride. Daniel prayed with an attitude of what? 
Humility. Humility. And we see his humility displayed, displayed here in some practical ways. First of all, is that he was he was out, he came with the Lord with pleas for mercy. Has the idea of begging. Has the idea of, of coming before God and just repetitively asking for his mercy upon him and, and the people. The idea here is that it wasn't a flippant prayer. It wasn't like, hey God, blew it again. Uh, see you later. Thanks for your grace. It wasn't a heartless prayer. It was a fervent prayer. It was a heartfelt prayer. It was a focused prayer. It was a humble prayer. Continually asking for God's mercy. And you're going to see this over and over as we read through here. But Daniel came to God begging for mercy. And this speaks to Daniel really feeling the weight of his sin and the sins of his people before God, knowing that the only remedy for what was going on was found in God alone. Also, we see in verse 3 that Daniel's humility in prayer was shown that he came with fasting. Now, this could be purposefully not eating food, but I have the idea, my idea here, at least what I see here, is that Daniel was so grieved by what he was reading and what he saw, he just sought the Lord and, and food just became secondary in his mind and in his life. And we see that by, it was a purposeful prioritization of his life about, God, this is so important that it takes priority over everything else. Even things basic as food. Daniel was so overwhelmed by the weight of the sin before God that Daniel didn't eat. He chose not to eat. He just, this was, this was not a business as usual prayer. There was a brokenness within Daniel over what he and the people of God had done. That they had defamed God among the nations. And the fact that reconciliation with God was more important than even his food. The third thing in, in Daniel's humility was shown in outwardly in that he came in sackcloth and ashes. Now, these were just social cues of the day. In other words, you didn't put on your comfortable clothes to have your prayer hour. In other words, they put on like the grain, the grain sacks that were itchy and scratchy. How many of you ever had like a tag that doesn't bug, that bugs you? Well, this bugs you all over. It's not as if this made Daniel any more righteous, but it was an outward reflection of what was going on in his heart. Does that make sense? He came in sackcloth and ashes. He like put ashes on himself. He threw, they throw dirt up in there and fall down their face. In other words, there's just an inward brokenness and an outward brokenness. Daniel was just broken before God. There was a humility that was manifested. The idea is these are outward signs of an inward misery. Have you ever been like that in your life before God? You just don't want to eat. It doesn't make a difference what you're wearing. It's not about all that stuff. It's just about God. Got to have you. Got to be close to you. This is the heart that Daniel had over his own sin and the nation's sin. And so Daniel came to God with pleas of mercy, this repetitive, humble cry. And so it's out of a response to the word of God and with this spirit of humility that Daniel begins to pray. Pray in verses 4 through 19. We'll read big chunks of it. We'll just do some highlights. Verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands, we 
have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. If we could just summarize what Daniel starts off here as his shot across the bow, he just comes to God and says, God, you are right, and we are wrong. There's no qualifications in there. And this is what confession is. We're confessing that he is right and we are wrong. He is right and we are wrong. And this goes on the heels of the attitude of humility. Amen? Work of the Spirit there. But confession begins with confessing that God is right and we are wrong. Daniel confesses in verse 4 that God is right, saying, you are great and awesome. You are great and awesome, God. He starts out, hallowed be thy name. You know what I mean? You are great and awesome. And then he goes on and goes, you keep the covenants you made. You love steadfastly those who love you and keep your commandments. You do all those things. You don't falter in that. You're not the problem. We're the problem. You see, God is the steadfast one. Confession begins with acknowledging that God is righteous. Secondly, Daniel then confesses, we are wrong. What are the, what's that one saying? Like the three hardest things to say? <laughs> You're right, I was wrong in Worcestershire sauce or whatever it is. <laughs> Daniel then confesses that we are wrong. Verse 5 says, we have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And this is really just a shot across the bow. This is just a big thing. He's just starting out, because he didn't get more detailed. But you see, confession isn't just, sorry, God, I'll see you, have a nice day, thanks for your grace. It's coming to God with humility and confessing, God, you are right, according to your word, and I'm wrong. Or in Daniel's case, we were wrong. In Daniel's confession confessing that they were in the wrong, and he spells it out by saying, hey, we sinned against you. We did wrong. We acted wrong. We rebelled, and we turned aside. We didn't listen to you. We willfully went against what you said, and Daniel goes on and says, not only did we do all that, verse 6, he says, we didn't listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We didn't listen when you lovingly came after us. We didn't listen. How many of you have had that before? God is trying to get a hold of you, and you know he's triangulating on you, and people are talking and all that stuff, and he's saying, hey. And you're like, nah. Same thing with Israel here, Judah. He says, we didn't listen when you brought the, the prophets. Actually, what did they do? They persecuted the prophets. They ignored them. We didn't listen when you lovely came after us. Jeremiah was doing that for 23 years. They threw him in a pit. So basically, Daniel says, we're guilty. We didn't listen to you when, we were call- when you were calling us to print. You are awesome. We're the problem. You're right. We're wrong. But confession isn't just confessing that God is right and we're wrong. Listen, church. Daniel is, in his confession, also confessed that God in his judgment of them was right. When God disciplined them, it's right. How many of you have, have, when God disciplines us, you get mad at God, that he's like, he's being unjust and unfair and all those things. 
Verse 7 through 8 says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who, who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of their treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belong open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. Notice, no excuses. No excuses. Lord, you are right in doing what you have done to us, in scattering us, removing us, punishing us, executing us, all those things. God, you are totally right in doing that. We sinned against you, our whole nation. We're all guilty. The royalty is guilty down to the littlest man. We're all guilty before you. Listen, we can sometimes hold a grudge against God. We can sometimes go to God and say, hey, I don't like how you're handling this, God. What's going on? You know what? We would be wrong in doing that. We, and guess how many times we're wrong when we do that? <laughs> Take a guess. Every time. Because God is never wrong in his judgments, and he is never wrong in how he disciplines, especially his kids. We'll roll back to Hebrews 12 in a bit, for those of you who are out there already. But we would be wrong in doing so because in reality, we deserve far worse. Any discipline that God enacts in our life is an act of mercy upon us. Because what we truly deserve is to be separated from all eternity in hell from God. We don't deserve this life. We don't deserve the breath we have. We don't deserve anything. And God in His judgment is always just. He is the ruler. We have all sinned against Him. So, don't complain. He is right. And listen, Daniel had reason to complain from an earthly standard. Seventy years of captivity. Listen, he was a teenager. He didn't get to have his teenager years. He didn't get to drive the car around, have the game, didn't go to prom, all that kind of stuff. They got attacked, and he got taken out. His family most likely died because they were royalty. Everybody around him got decimated. The city was burned to the ground, and he got yanked out to a foreign land he got castrated and he became a eunuch. Seventy years, he watched it all happen. He had a lot to be grumbling about. And Daniel says, you were right in your judgment. You were right, God. We deserve the open shame we have. True confession is not only confessing that God is right and we're in the wrong. Confession is a confession of the righteousness of God and his judgment and discipline. Sounds like unconditional surrender, doesn't it? Same way we come to Jesus. Same thing in confession. And so often we're tempted to think that God's not just. Daniel knows better. Daniel says, you were right in how you dealt with us. We were treacherous towards you. We're traitors. And so confession has an acknowledgement of God's righteous discipline upon us. And then Daniel in verses 9 through 15, and this is the big chunk we'll read, it's as if Daniel just fully unloads the weight of the matter before the Lord. The weight of his sin, the, the, the judgment that was put upon him, he just kind of takes it all and just puts it before God. And, and he's doing this because he has in mind as he's doing this, he says, this is how big the sin is and this is how 
difficult the judgment is. He's taking it all and he puts it in the context of verse 9. What does verse 9 say? To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. He starts unloading all the details and all the trauma and all that stuff before the Lord. He just unloads it before the Lord in view of his, what? Mercy and forgiveness. Because he's gonna, what he's going to unload to God, he says, only you have the ability to have mercy in our situation and to forgive us. And so he's able to unload the weight of the sin and the fault of the nation upon God. This is Daniel's confession, so let's read. We'll just read this big, uh, we'll go 9 through 14 or so, 9 through 15. He says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And he starts laying out their, their need for God's mercy and forgiveness here. He says, for we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, prophets. And all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. That's Leviticus 26 and other places. Read Leviticus 26. You'll have blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. Here they are. He laid it out beforehand. And he says, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his word. He made good on it, which he spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been anything done that has been done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, just like God said it would. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. They haven't repented in all of that. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it, brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Listen, not only got judgment, they continued in their waywardness for that 70 years. In the judgment, in the hardness, they wouldn't turn. But it seems like now there's a softening by God's mercy. How many of you have experienced the judgment and, and the weight and the discipline of God, and you just keep going. He says, we haven't turned, we didn't obey. And now, O Lord our God, uh, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and he's going back to their history saying, listen, remember how amazing that deliverance was of your people. And have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. You brought us out, and look what we did for all that. And it's because of verse 9 that the Lord our God, belong, to, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, that Daniel just confesses in great detail their sin before God. And Daniel just follows, just says all this. And he says, we disobeyed you, and we wouldn't listen to you, and, and, did just as you, and, and it happened just as you said. We abandoned the blessing for the curse. When we disobeyed your voice, you did exactly as you said it would happen. That's exactly what happened. God, listen, this is why we need to be in God's word. 
God just, like, He does what He says. Like, anybody you can ever rely on, it's Him. He does what He says. This is why the enemy wants to keep us from the Word of God. That's why our flesh doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So we can remain in darkness because we love darkness rather than light. But the Lord has given us the light of His truth, and as we read it, our souls are pierced and we're cleansed as we move closer to the Lord in confession and forgiveness and as we walk in righteousness. You see, it's a beautiful process the Lord's put us in by grace. But the context of this detailed confession is that Daniel holds nothing back and he's fully trusting in in the mercy and forgiveness of God. Isn't that awesome that you can absolutely pour out your sins and your faults and, and all those things before God, knowing that God's mercy is greater than your sin, knowing that God's forgiveness is enough to thoroughly cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the great God that we have and that He is a God of mercy. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. God is a merciful God. That's how He declares Himself to be. That doesn't mean He abandons His righteousness. He doesn't. But He is a God who is very merciful and Daniel knows this and He just pours it out. And that leads to Daniel's, he finally gets to the ask. How many of you start with the ask? Like, like David, there's a time for that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. But sometimes Daniel wants to, he's leading up to it. He's saying everything that's happened to us is because we left you. And you were right in everything you did. But now he's appealing to the mercy of God. And look at, now he finally, in verse 16, gets, he asks the Lord, O Lord, According to your righteous acts, let your what? Let your anger and your wrath turn away from what? Your city, Jerusalem? He's praying for a city. Your city, Jerusalem, which is desolate. Nothing's there. No, nothing's going on. It's left desolate. Your holy hill, because of our sins. Have mercy on that place because of its desolation. Because of our sins. For the iniquities of our Father, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So finally, Daniel asks the Lord to relent from his anger and wrath towards Jerusalem. That's weird. And the reason he is asking for this, I wouldn't ask for that, I would ask for me, right? What do you think... Daniel's priority is? Just ask that for a second. What, what do you think Daniel's thinking about? Who's he concerned with? Whose name is he concerned with? Above what? He's looking at the word going, we tarnished your name in front of the nations. That city represents you. The temple represents you. The people represent you. It's your name that was tarnished when we decided to disobey you and abandon you and do all these things. See, Daniel's, he's looking at God's name above all. He's going, look what's happened to your name. So Lord, restore Jerusalem. This really gets to the heart of it. Because the very people who are supposed to cause the nations to know God are supposed to populate that city. 
And this really gets to the heart of Daniel's confession and that Daniel can't bear the fact that the people of God and the city of God have reflected so poorly upon the character of God to the point where they have become a byword. Does that happen with us? And this should be at the heart of our confession of God. What's the purpose of confession? That we have become convicted by the Spirit because our lives and our witnesses drag the name of Jesus through the mud because of our words and actions. They don't reflect His character and His glory. That's the heart of conviction. It's about His name, His kingdom, His glory, and us just saying, pointing a sign that says anything but. Daniel feels the weight of this, this great assault on God's character. You see, do we view it about that? Or do we view it like, hey, God, get your boot off my neck so I continue to do my life? Our life is wrapped up in Him. It's His name that we bear. It's His glory that we're about. Daniel feels the weight of this great assault on the name of God by their sins, and he cries out for mercy. Verse 17, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his what? Pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. Now, Jerusalem means city of peace. But the idea is that it's called by His name because that is where the, the temple was. That is where the center of worship was. That is where the people of God met. For your name's sake, do what you said you would do in Jeremiah 25. Cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Restore your sanctuary in your city. You see that? Verse 18, incline your ear, open your eyes, and see our desolation in the city that is called by your name. You see, the reason for Daniel's confession was that God's name had been tarnished because of their sin. Daniel's saying, restore your name in your sanctuary. Restore your city that bears your name. Restore your people that bear your name. Restore us to the right way so your name would be glorified among the nations. The name of Jerusalem, again, means city of peace. And, it, and this, that it represents his character, but Jerusalem was the center of the worship of God. Now, really quickly, verse 18b, the second half of verse 18. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I don't come before you because of anything we've done, but because you are merciful. O Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Now, does it seem like Daniel's telling God what to do? He's simply saying, God, you said in Jeremiah 25, this is your plan. The gap is, we need to repent and confess. And so, Lord, be merciful and your will be done. That's what, that's what he's saying. Your will be done, Lord. Hear. Have mercy. Restore Jerusalem. Restore us. Do all these things for your namesake act. 
Isn't that awesome? That's what he's simply saying. Daniel isn't telling God what to do. He's simply saying, may it be done according to your word. And verse 19 says, delay not. Why? For whose namesake? Daniel's namesake? For your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by what? Your name. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you bear the name of Christ? When you were baptized, what name were you baptized into? The name of the Father, the name of the Holy Spirit, the name of the Son. You're baptized into God. You're baptized into Christ. You're baptized with the Spirit, so to speak. But at the heart of confession for, for the believer is the glory of God. It's a really simple thing we have as our motto for the church. We exist to glorify God by what? Loving and obeying Jesus Christ. What happens when we love and obey him? His name is made great in here and out there. And at the heart of confession is the will of God being accomplished. We're closing here. At the heart of confession is my words, my actions, my life reflecting and bringing glory to his name. At the heart of confession is our words, our life, our actions bringing glory to his name, right? The church isn't some club. Where does the Spirit of God dwell now? In the temple. Where is the temple? O Lord God, cause your face to shine upon the temple again. The believers. Lord God, cause your name to shine upon your temple, your people. We have a spirit within us. We bear his name. We're Christians. That means we bear Christ. He's our banner. He's our Lord. He's our God. Amen? And similarly to Israel, when we disobey the Lord, we ignore, when we ignore his voice, when we go after foreign gods, when we reject his commands, when we ignore his warnings, when, we be, when it becomes about our lives and our houses and our jobs and our kids and our names above his name, the Lord will bring us his discipline upon us for his namesake and for our blessing. Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, when God disciplines us, when we get out of line, when we stop reflecting his name and his glory. For the Lord disciplines the ones he what? He loves. Doesn't discipline those who aren't his sons. His daughters. He disciplines his kids. So don't grow weary from it when he reproved by him. He chastises every son whom he receives, every daughter he receives. And again in verses 11 through 13 of Hebrews 12, for the moment the discipline seems painful. Oh, I hate the 70 years. Rather than pleasant, but later it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness, right deeds, right doing, right living to those who have been trained by it. And so like Daniel, if you've been trained by it, Hebrews verse 12, verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands, church, and strengthen your weak knees. 
And make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather is healed. The picture here is the Lord is the head. And when we're not doing what the head says, we are weird. And we aren't bringing glory to the head. But when we start listening, when the discipline of the Lord comes in, we start doing what we're supposed to. We're fit. We're following the head. And it brings glory to God. brings glory to Christ. Because we are a testimony to the head. And so as he disciplines us as sons and daughters because we're his, don't despise it. Don't despise the 70 years, but respond. Because guess what? He's right. We're wrong. (laughs) And we must confess our sin in light of his great mercy and forgiveness and know that our pleas and, and petitions for mercy are according to his will. That's He desires to be merciful, and he is all about forgiveness. Amen? He is all about restoration. He is all about taking away our sins and bringing us into the fellowship of his son. That is what he desires for his name, his great namesake. Amen? And so, I think I'm going to end there. I've got some more things to say, but I think I've said it. I think confession needs to be a regular part of the church. And how much, how at fault are we on a daily basis? Amen? This world makes us think we've got to walk around pretending like we've got it all together. The reality is we are so messed up that we needed to lose our lives and abandon everything we are for God to save us. We need to lose our lives. And so the Lord's created the body of Christ, where we confess to the Lord, we confess to one another that we may be healed, that we can take solace in one another and encourage one another and strengthen one another in our weakness. Just encourage you to walk like that and let the Spirit of God speak to us as we're in the Word here, as you're by yourself, and and just respond. And when we're out of line, just say, Lord, it's as you say. Have mercy upon me, Lord. And may the Lord just do a massive work in this fellowship and in his church, right? That his name would be awesome among the nations. Amen? Lord God, we come before you and we do confess our our faults to you, Lord. And we are a selfish people at the core. Lord, you know this. You knew this when you bought us. And yet, Lord, we go to that trough over and over and over and wallow in the slop. And so God, forgive us and cleanse us and remind us of who we are in you and the righteous calling that you've called us to in Christ Jesus. That we're no longer in the slop, but we're sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, help us to act accordingly as your spirit is at work within us. The outward man would be perishing and the inward man would be being renewed day by day. And so Lord, be the head of the church, Lord the head of our lives, the head of our families, the head of our days, Lord, as we move forward. And may the world see your name in lights above everything. In the name of Jesus, amen.